Jeffrey Lickman for Beyond the Legal Limit. It's May 8th. It's a new podcast. And in this one, I want to speak about some of the big cases that are in the news. And I think I can provide some perspective that's not always seen in the traditional media. The first case that I want to talk about is the Jordan Neely. That's the homeless man who died uh, in a chokehold in the subway in New York City. It was a former Marine that did it. And from what I can gather, the grand jury, Manhattan DA grand jury, can indict for one of two charges. And you remember this case. This was just happened where there's a crazy person in the subway. He's screaming. He's yelling. He's threatening people. He's throwing his jacket on the ground. Unbeknownst to people in the subway, he has a very violent, long legal history and just keeps getting released, you know, on his, on bail, getting out of jail. And naturally, he gravitates towards the subway where he's harassing people and going nuts. And eventually, somebody had enough and put him in a chokehold to try to subdue him. And alas, he died. The first charge that I thought that is probably most likely is criminal, criminally negligent homicide. And that's known in New York also as involuntary manslaughter. And that's the lowest level felony that can be charged in New York in terms of the level. It's an E felony. My belief is that if he's charged with that, most likely the defendant, the Marine, would end up with a no-jail disposition on a plea. It's almost impossible for an e-felony to end up with jail time unless you've got a criminal history and something like that. To be guilty of criminally negligent homicide, a defendant acts with criminal negligence in causing the death of another person. And to act with criminal negligence, you have to fail to perceive a substantial and unjustifiable, that's the word, unjustifiable risk that such result will occur or that the circumstances exist which could cause the death. The risk must be of such nature and degree that the failure to perceive the risk constitutes a gross deviation from the standard of care that a reasonable person would observe in that situation. So you basically have to miss the fact that what you're doing could cause the death of Jordan Neely and your actions have to be a gross deviation from what a reasonable person would do. I think that's close at best. The other more serious charge would be manslaughter in the second degree, which is a C felony and would most likely result in some jail time. A person is guilty of manslaughter in the second degree when he recklessly causes the death of another person. And a person acts recklessly when he is aware and consciously disregards a substantial and unjustifiable risk that such a result will occur. The risk must be of such nature and degree that disregarding it constitutes a gross deviation from the standard of conduct that is reasonable and that a reasonable person would observe in the situation. So this is a lot of legal mumbo jumbo. So I'm just going to cut to the chase here. The difference in the two charges is whether the Marine failed to perceive that his chokehold could cause a substantial and unjustifiable risk of the death of Jordan Neely, or that he was aware and consciously disregarded the substantial and unjustifiable risk that his chokehold could cause uh, the death of Jordan Neely. But you have to look at the circumstances in which the chokehold was implemented, because as both statutes say, it has to be a gross deviation from what a reasonable person would do, and it also has to be unjustified. 
in both cases. If you can show the defense that you know, this was justified or that this is what a reasonable person would have done under the circumstances, well, guess what? He's not getting indicted or he's certainly not getting convicted. So the details of the chokehold, I suppose, is the first one. Was he trained the Marine to give a chokehold when he was in the Marines? I mean, that's something that the police uh, are trained to do. And what he did with the chokehold, was it one that was designed to incapacitate or kill? Because I suppose you can give someone a chokehold and, you know, break their necks or crush their uh, their throat and you've got a dead person there. Or was it a chokehold that was designed to just incapacitate? These are the issues that are important. And the point is that he failed to perceive all of this because of his training in Marines. Did he know that the dangers of the chokehold existed, that what he was doing? These are things that need to be answered. But as I said, you have to go back, and this is really the main part. This is what's going to make or break the defense or whether there's going to be an indictment in this case. You have to go back to the threat that was posed by Jordan Neely and whether the Marine was justified in using force to immobilize him. By all accounts, Jordan uh, Neely was harassing passengers, threatening them, acting crazy, screaming and saying he didn't care if he was arrested, which clearly was the case because at the time of his death, he'd been arrested, I think, 42 times and often for violent offenses. At the time of his death, he had a warrant out for him for a November 2021 case in which he was accused of assaulting a 67-year-old woman. And over the weekend, it came out. This did not get a lot of publicity. Over the weekend, it came out that the day before he was killed in the subway, Neely tried to push a subway passenger onto the tracks. So this was a very dangerous person. He wasn't armed on the subway, apparently, but he was yelling at people and acting in a threatening manner. And the fellow who took uh, the video on the subway, who was you know the one who uh, recorded it all, said, and this is his quote, None of us were thinking that he could die. He was moving and he was defending himself. And that is a crucial, crucial witness here. Because what happened, if you look at the video, Neely was trying to get out of the chokehold. He wasn't just submitting and agreeing to stop acting in an aggressive manner. The Marine held him down in an effort clearly to get him to stop his violent and aggressive behavior. He wasn't trying to kill him. That's obvious from the video. If he wanted to kill him, he would have killed him in 15 seconds. It's not what happened. He could have just simply choked him to death quickly. He didn't. He didn't punch him. He didn't beat him in any manner. He was just clearly trying to subdue a mentally deranged, violent guy. And as I said, the, the best witness was the guy that was right there two feet away. And he said, we never thought that it was even a possibility that he could die. He was fighting back. He just wanted to subdue him. So here's my thoughts. No way is the Marine getting convicted, getting convicted here. No matter how loudly the press screams for it or Alexandra Cortez Jimenez, she cries and yells and weeps and, and tears her shirt off. I take the subway and like all New Yorkers, I'm sick and tired of the lunatics that are on it. I'm just trying to get to court because it's faster. That's what everybody's trying to do. We're trying to get to their jobs or, or wherever you got to go. You're not looking for any trouble. We just want a safe, fast ride. We pay for a safe, fast ride. We don't pay to get panhandled, yelled at, or attacked. 
And how many videos on subways have we seen where men or women are being attacked and some asshole takes the video of the attack, but no one ever stops the attacker? We watch these videos and we wish that someone would, would just take that attacker down or punch him or stop him from attacking someone else. And now when, when someone finally does it, we want to charge the guy with murder? Fuck that. Instead of all the opportunistic politicians screaming about charging the Marine with murder, they sh should acknowledge that this Jordan Neely's blood, it's on their hands. Why are homeless, mentally ill people allowed on the subway? Why aren't they in a hospital? Why are we accepting tens of thousands of illegal immigrants as a sanctuary city when our resources should be devoted to taking care of our own first? Why did this Marine have to take Jordan Neely down? Why did he have to be in that position at all? He did so because the system failed Jordan Neely. He didn't become mentally ill yesterday. This has been going on since his mother was brutally murdered by his stepfather 16 years ago when Neely was just 14 years old. There was a warrant out for his arrest for assaulting an elderly woman, as I said. He had absconded from a mental hospital. Why? The Marine was just minding his own business on the subway when Jordan Neely went nuts, crazy, and on drugs. God knows what he was on. Shame on the Marine if, if Neely had actually been uh, permitted to attack someone and the Marine's just going to sit there and do nothing? Instead, he did the right thing by subduing him. Did it go too far? Clearly, because he died. But was the Marine justified in holding him there until he was no longer posing a threat? Yes, of course. That's what a reasonable person should be doing. And I'm so sick and tired of this becoming just another racial issue. Jordan Neely wasn't killed because he was black. He was killed because he was going nuts on the subway where he didn't belong. You can't use every death of a black person as a reason to score a political point. It's not fair to black people. It's just garbage. Jordan Neely wasn't killed because he was black. He was killed because New York City failed him. He was killed because liberals have infected New York City with their disease. And that disease killed Jordan Neely. He should have been taken off the streets and received care at a mental hospital. Instead of the, the race baiters claiming that Jordan Neely was killed because he was black, they should be castigating New York City government and the federal government for not caring for people like Jordan Neely. Why blame the guy, the one guy who finally stepped in and tried to stop a disaster that was about to happen? If we had heard that he killed somebody on the subway, everybody would be blasting all the bystanders. Why didn't you do something? Well, someone did. And now this guy's going to pay for it for the rest of his life? We, the people of New York City, should not be forced to deal with Jordan Neely's mental illness as it flares in our faces. Now, Eric Adams is one of the race baiters, naturally, the mayor of New York City, the, the mayor in the club. He claimed that Texas Governor Greg Abbott was racist because Abbott had been busing thousands of immigrants to New York City. They're all coming into Texas from the border from Mexico. And he's claiming that Abbott wanted to hurt black-run cities. Now, that's just a fucking lie. Your failures, Adams, are because of you and your president, Biden. You claim New York City was a sanctuary city, so shut up and take the illegals. 
Somehow Adams forgot that the Democratic mayor of El Paso, Texas, who is Mexican, has shipped more than twice the number of migrants both to New York City and Chicago than Greg Abbott, the governor. Two black-run cities, New York City and Chicago. Stop using the ramifications of your shitty governing to try to score cheap race points. It's not helping your toilet bowl cities or the people you claim you're advocating for, the blacks. It's not fair to them. It's racism of low expectations. And it's not right. It's not right. In a May 3 statement, Al Sharpton compared the Jordan Neely incident to Bernie Getz. Do you remember Bernie Getz? Anybody here? Of course you do. Unless you're 12 years old. You know who Bernie Getz is. He shot four black men on the subway on December 22, 1984, when Getz said he believed that they were trying to rob him. Sharpton said, we cannot end up back in a place where vigilanteism is tolerable. It wasn't acceptable then, and it cannot be accepted now. Well, guess what? A jury acquitted Bernie Getz of murder. So vigilanteism was acceptable then. In that case, four black men went up to Getz on the subway, and this is when the subways were much worse than they are now, and they're pretty bad now, and demanded money from him. They were all armed, although none of them had taken out their weapons. They were screwdrivers. None of them had taken out their weapons yet. But you're on the subway, and four dudes walk up to you, and they say, give me money. Guess what? You know what's coming next. You know what's coming next if you're in that subway. You know you're going to get jumped. So the evidence showed that Get pulled out his gun at that point when he felt he was about to be mugged and started shooting. He shot some of them in the back as the men were running away. One guy was shot while he was laid out on the subway seat after being shot, and it severed his spine. The bullets that Getz used were hollow point. That's designed to cause the maximum damage to the target that they hit. Getz was acquitted in 1987 because the people of New York had had enough of being victimized on subways and the streets of New York. He was convicted of possessing an illegal gun. He had to be convicted of that. The gun was illegal. That was the defense, you know, had to shoot him. Gun was illegal, sorry. And he spent six months in jail. Getz was way more guilty than the Marine who killed Jordan Neely. It's not even up for debate. And my argument to the jury would be as follows, and it's much of what I just said. I would say to the jury, you are allowed to go to and from work in peace. It is not asking too much for you to take the subway in peace. That's the bare minimum New Yorkers are entitled to. How many times have we watched videos on the internet with crazy, violent people on the subway, either yelling in people's faces, hitting them, abusing them, and we all react the same way? Why didn't someone stop it? Why didn't the guy who was taking the video do something other than record it? And you get pissed when you see these videos. Well, here's the one time someone decided to step in and risk his life trying to get between a crazy, violent person on the subway and his intended victims. The one time. And he didn't take out a gun and shoot him. He didn't jump him from behind and beat him with a bat or with his fists. The defendant had no idea what Jordan Neely had in his pockets. He had no idea if he had a gun or a knife. He just knew that he saw a very loud, seemingly insane man acting erratically, yelling at his fellow passengers, threatening them, acting violently. And instead of doing nothing, he did something heroic. He risked his life to try to protect the passengers on that train 
but even he tried to protect Jordan Neely from himself. He didn't ask for any help. He did it himself. And yes, the prosecutor claims that the chokehold that he kept Jordan Neely in was responsible for his death. But you know what? What you didn't see on the video? Anyone trying to pull a defendant off of Neely. No one was so concerned that the chokehold was actually causing the death of Jordan Neely that he or she attempted to free Jordan Neely from the defendant. Instead, one witness testified that none of us were thinking that he could die. He was moving and he was defending himself. That was Jordan Neely who was moving and fighting the Marine trying to free himself. And you can presume that he wasn't hoping to free himself so that he could then act in a rational manner. He was trying to free himself so he could do more damage to passengers. Perhaps try to push one onto the tracks? Perhaps assault an elderly lady? You know, just some of the things that Jordan Neely had recently done. And yes, it's horribly sad that the man is dead. But don't let your emotions get in the way here. For whatever reason, Jordan Neely was acting the way he did on the subway that day. He was a violent danger and threat to those around him. And if the defendant didn't take matters into his own hands, God only knows what could have happened. And what does he get for risking his life engaging a violent, crazy person on the subway? He gets a criminal indictment. He gets vilified in the press by some political leaders, some race hustlers trying to score some points with the public. The defendant didn't act in an unreasonable manner. He didn't punch Jordan Neely. He didn't strike him at all. He simply tried to restrain him calmly. You saw the video. Had Jordan Neely just given in and stopped his violent behavior, he would still be alive today. And he'd probably be charged with his 43rd crime in New York City and said the person who tried to stop him, who was involved in this horrible accident, an unintended accident, is facing prison for simply doing what we all wish we would do when we see a violent person screaming and threatening people on the subway. So you have to decide what kind of city you want to live in. One where crazy, violent people can do whatever they want to you on the subway or on the street, and you can't even try to stop them until they stop their violent behavior? Do you want New York City to continue to circle the drain? Or do you want to live in a place where your neighbors help you when you're being threatened by strangers? And the prosecutors are blaming this man, my client, for this disaster? Maybe if they had done a damn thing over the last 43 times Jordan Neely was arrested instead of just letting him go, he'd still be here today. Now that line would get objected to by the prosecutors and stricken by the judge. But it would still have some impact, and I do this during trials. I know what I'm saying is going to be objected to. I know that it's going to be stricken, but it's an important point to make. And you cannot unring a bell. So when I say it, you can strike it. The judge can strike it. It's still in the jury's minds. Now, <laughs> that's, that's sort of the piece of what a summation would be. Naturally, of course, the craze, the, now we're going back to me just opining big-mouthing. The crazed BLM types are protest, protesting in New York City. They're blocking the subways. They're jumping onto the tracks. They're causing their usual mayhem because they want the Marine charged with murder. No way can the legal process go according to law, of course. They insist that he just be charged. You know, you can't even have an investigation because these people, they know better. They know the law. They know the facts. They know better. But they seem to have no interest in protesting the lack of care for Jordan Neely when he lost his mind after his mother died or when he was homeless. 
Nope. They have no problem with Eric Adams and Bill de Blasio and whoever else was in charge in New York City for failing to take Neely off the streets and getting him the care that he needed. Nope. This was a murder. Just charge the man. Forget that he had dozens of victims of crimes that he committed. Forget the fact that he tried to push someone on the subway tracks the day before he died. Nope, 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 nope. Get the white guy. That's all this is about. It's sick. The leftists who are protesting about the Jordan Neely death remind me of the same leftists who support the Palestinian terrorists in Israel. One of the terror leaders last week died after a hunger strike. He was in an Israeli prison, and naturally, the Palestinians and their leftist supporters claimed that he was assassinated by Israel and that they refused to give him proper medical care. They also claimed that he was being held with no charges against them. Forget that he was actually charged with terrorism and denied bail. That's why he was in prison. So that's the first lie. And the leftists and the Palestinians, they're one and the same. They are hand in glove. They just have no problem lying to your face. And they just figure, you know what, maybe you'll believe it. Maybe we got a shot and you'll believe it. Forget that he was a leader of a terror organization funded by Iran, an organization whose sole existence was to kill Israelis. That's it. Forget that he was on video exhorting Palestinians to kill Jews, to blow themselves up for Allah to kill Jews. He was begging people to blow themselves up. He wanted their body parts to fly off. Those are his words, not mine. And all Israel tried to do was just try to stop him from killing people in Israel. And then he refused to eat. This is the guy that began. He was the, this is like what counts as a, as a brilliant Palestinian. He invented the hunger strike in Palestine. Of course, he didn't invent it. This has been going on for decades. I can think back to Bobby Sands in uh, 79 or 80, whatever it was, uh, the Irish prisoner who actually did a hunger strike and was successful. Palestinians go on hunger strikes every day. They gain weight because, of course, they lie as they do with everything else. They eat food and they can go on 300-day hunger strikes and never lose any weight because they eat. They eat. They just lie about it. You cannot go 300 days without eating. Palestinians claim they can. This is the first one that was actually successful out of probably, I don't know, 200 of these hunger strikes. He refused to eat. The Israeli prison doctors tried to feed him and treat him. He refused to Palestinians and their leftist supporters. That's bad medical care. No one seems to care about the victims of the man's terrorism or the Palestinians launched dozens of rockets at Israeli civilians in the aftermath of this terrorist killing himself in prison. Nope. Israel is bad, period. Nothing to discuss. The protesters demanding justice for Jordan Neely seem to think that suddenly because he died, he's now a saint. He's now a saint. And that he wasn't responsible at all for what happened to him. That's the same energy as the protests and support of the Nazi-worshipping Palestinian terrorists who celebrated on 9-11 and execute gays with regularity. Same shit. I look at what's going on with Jordan Neely, and I just see Gaza. I just see the West Bank. It's the same mentality, which tells me both of these groups are evil. They're both leftist, and whatever the leftists touch, they destroy, Period. Now, I'm going to take a quick break and come back uh, with two more cases. Jeffrey Lickman for Beyond the Legal Limit. Jeffrey Lickman for Beyond the Legal Limit. Now, the next case I want to quickly discuss is this Ed Sheeran copyright infringement lawsuit 
which just ended in his favor. Now, just so you know, first of all, the trial occurred in federal courthouse in Manhattan. I just want to say from the beginning, I have no idea who Ed Sheeran is. No idea. I had no idea who he was until I was in court and I saw a huge uh, crowd of reporters. And I, of course, naturally assumed that they're there for me. And then I remembered that I wasn't there for an important case uh, in the public. But I still, of course, thought they were there for me. And someone told me they were there for Ed Sheeran. And I'm like, who? And then I see some red-haired kid get out of a car dressed badly with rumpled hair. He looked ridiculous. I said, well, that must be Ed Sheeran. But I had read about the case in the papers after that. And as I said, I saw him in court. The lawsuit was about whether he ripped off Marvin Gaye's song, Let's Get It On, when he wrote his song, which was entitled Thinking Out Loud. Now, obviously, I know who Marvin Gaye is. Anybody with half a brain does. And I've listened to Let's Get It On, I don't know, a million times. This is not my area of law, but I have a brain and I have ears and I listened to both songs. It was the first time I ever listened to an Ed Sheeran song. The songs sound nothing alike. So I'm not surprised the jury found for Sheeran in about 10 seconds. I felt bad for Sheeran upon listening to his song when I compared it to Let's Get It On, because it, it seems to me that he was being sued just because he's a very successful musician, even if he couldn't count me as a fan, so I don't know how successful that makes him. Nevertheless, because he's successful, people come after him unjustly for money. That's the oldest tale. Is somebody rich, get his money. We got to have his money. We don't have money, get his money. Now, another case in which the plaintiff won when claiming that a second song copied the first one was the Chiffon's He's So Fine. That songwriter sued George Harrison of the Beatles for his song, My Sweet Lord. I think My Sweet Lord was the first hit single album that Harrison did after the uh, Beatles broke up. Listen to both songs. Listen to He's So Fine. Listen to My Sweet Lord. The two songs are remarkably similar, and Harrison lost the case. Big surprise. What a shock. But that's not why I'm bringing up this case about whether Sheeran's song was similar to Marvin Gaye's. Frankly, I don't care. What I thought was interesting was that one of the lawyers for the plaintiffs, this was, and this really got very little press. The one who lost the case was Ben Crump the well-known civil rights lawyer who always seems to be front and center whenever a black man is killed by the police. He's always there to sue the police or the state or whatever bottomless pit of money might be responsible for a minority being unfairly killed by cops. And look, God bless the man. It's incredible work if you can get it. Except I used to watch this and I'd see him always there. He's ubiquitous. Wherever there's a, a dead black person killed by the police, Ben Crump is there in a suit. And I, I always felt that such a job doesn't require a lot of work or skill. When a cop mistakenly or intentionally kills a person, the issue in the civil case that follows is not one of liability. <clears throat> Everybody knows that they did it and they were wrong. So the only issue is really the size of the check being written, and of which presumably he gets a third. My God. So secretly I wondered... Does the man have any actual legal skills? You know, I have no idea. I don't know the guy. I just, I didn't know. And he may. I, I don't know. He may or he may not. I don't know. Being the mechanism for a murdered man, for his family to get money from the state or a government, doesn't necessarily mean that the man's a good attorney, no matter how many press conferences he's at. So I read the reviews during the Sheeran case of Crump, as I never knew of any other trial he had done in his life. Now, I couldn't name one trial. One trial, which is weird because if you're a famous lawyer, presumably you're well known for at least one actual trial, not just famous for showing up when they cut that check. 
you know, you have to to assume that. Now, I, I read the reviews with really a, a, a jaded view because the press doesn't know what they're talking about. They really don't. I mean, they're just, they're so dumb. And, and you know, respectfully, if any of the press is listening, you're really fucking dumb. And I can tell you that when my trials, I, I've had a number of very high profile trials. The only time I was ever criticized for any work that I had ever done on a trial was during the Chapo case when the press said, well, when the defense, when the government rested, the defense's case only lasted a half an hour and the government's case lasted, I don't know, 12 weeks or whatever it was. Well, guess what? The defense rarely puts on a case, almost rarely. I've won trial after trial and not put on a case at all. You're not required to. You don't have the burden of proof. You just have to screw up the government's case or show that it's uh, their charges have not been proven beyond a reasonable doubt. Who are we going to call? 15 witnesses that were there and said that you know the drug dealing didn't happen? Of course not. So naturally, the defense case was very short. But the press has no idea what they're doing. They never bothered to actually ask real trial lawyers, and they just wrote, even the New York Times, my God, the defense was only a half an hour long. And of course, I was the face of the defense, so I got blamed for it. That's the only time in my career that I've ever been criticized for legal work inside a courtroom while trying a case. Really? But I'll say this, coming into a New York federal courthouse to try a case is not easy for most lawyers in New York, which is why most criminal lawyers in New York steer clear of federal court. They just do the state stuff. It's tough work. The judges are smarter, the lawyers are better, and usually more is at stake. You're expected to be competent when you walk in. Coming from Florida, which is where Crump is from, I expected, honestly, a disaster from him in federal court in New York. Just settling civil cases does not make you a good trial lawyer in federal court, and that's exactly what seemed to happen to Crump, as by the accounts I read, he was obliterated by an old-school judge named Louis Stanton. I mean, old dude and old school. He expects you to be prepared. That's how it was when I came up. The judges, you know, they weren't picked because they had, you know, they were trans or they were gay or they were, you know, some certain ethnicity or they had a penis growing off their foreheads. No, they were picked because they were the smartest dudes. That was it. And oftentimes it ended up being old white guys and period, end of story. Was it racist? You know, I guess the other people didn't have the opportunity. I mean, that's why they didn't get picked. I'm not saying it was right, but those were the judges we were stuck with when I grew up in this profession, and they expected you to be competent. I remember one judge, Judge Glasser, brilliant judge, he's a law professor, you know, yelling at a prosecutor <laughs> in a case that I was in. We were standing in front of him, and he's screaming at Eric Korngold, that, that was the prosecutor's name, because he had a typo in his memo of law. And, and he's yelling at Eric, who I considered a friend. I still consider him a friend. And Eric is just humiliated, but I could see like a slight smirk on his face because he's getting yelled at because of a typo. So I see Eric smirking a little bit and I, I start to laugh a little bit and the, and judge glasser turns to me so i don't know what you're laughing at you had typos also so this is how it used to be if you made a typo you got yelled at okay now lawyers walk into federal court they don't even know the fucking rules of evidence there's not that many rules of evidence that you need to know when you walk into court you know there's a zillion rules of evidence guess what you need to know like i don't know 30 of them for an actual trial it's not hard. I don't know. Maybe read the law a little bit because, you know, well, you're a lawyer. I don't know. Maybe. So 
Judge Stanton just ripped Crump to shreds. And if you're appearing before a judge like Stanton, again, a judge who was appointed by Ronald Reagan 40 years ago, you better know what you're doing or else. Now, I have no doubt that the plaintiffs in this case figured they'd hire Crump because he's famous. So therefore, he must be really good. He's famous. He's good, right? He's, he gets all those big checks. But as I said, showing up at a funeral and collecting a check is not the skillful, skillful part of being a lawyer. And, and for those cases, just being able to get the cases is what makes you money. Not like deep thinking or knowing the law. So during the trial, it seemed that Ben Crump wasn't really up on the rules of evidence. And as I said, by all accounts, he got his ass handed to him by Judge Stanton. And I'm going to mention what happened. He drew this unusually harsh rebuke from Judge Stanton when he read from an email in front of the jury from Sheeran's manager that had not been admitted into evidence. So he's reading to the jury. He's basically testifying. He's reading an email that was not in evidence. How do you not know that? You can't read from a document that, uh, that's not in evidence in front of the jury. This is like first grade lawyering. And this is what Stanton said. Quote, do you remember what I when I told you not to testify? It wasn't very long ago, about five minutes ago. This isn't the first of my directions that you've forgotten and violated and apologized for, the judge told Crump. If you don't follow my instructions, I'm going to disqualify you. He actually threatened to disqualify Crump from the case in the middle of the trial. That happens like fairly often. I would say probably once in, I don't know, a million years. I've never even heard of such a thing. And adding to Crump's apparent ignorance of the rules of evidence, he had this so-called smoking gun piece of evidence that he presented to the jury. His words, not mine. And he said that this smoking gun was going to prove that the Sheeran song copied the Marvin Gaye song, and it was a video from a past Ed Sheeran concert in which the singer Sheeran performed a mashup. That means he's going from one song right into the next. They usually have some kind of similarity. And he performed a mashup of Thinking Out Loud, his song, and Let's Get It On by Marvin Gaye. This is Crump, what he said. That concert video is a confession. Well, it's really not. At all. Listen to the two songs. There's barely any resemblance. And if Ed Sheeran ripped off Marvin Gaye's Let's Get It On, the last thing he would have done was to play them together in a mashup during a concert. Come on. Musicians do this all the time during concerts. They play one song right into another song. And there's usually, it's not like some completely different songs. You don't go from uh, the end of one song into another that sounds nothing alike, that is different speed or completely different sounding. You sort of want them to flow. It's a mashup. Anybody who's ever been to a concert, it happens in every single concert. So what this told me is not only does Ben Crump not know the rules of evidence, but he has like no common sense for strategy on a case like this. And again, lesson learned. Being famous for being a lawyer doesn't always mean you have any talent at all. It's hard to believe, but it's true. Now, the other big case in the news is obviously the Trump civil trial. Now, this was a case I felt at the beginning was impossible for Trump to lose. And I didn't think, you know, I know that New Yorkers hate Trump. I get it. But I just felt that, you know, there's nine jurors in this civil case that you're going to get one that is not a diehard leftist, you know, mental patient. And there's also zero evidence. There's no DNA. There were no pictures. There's no recordings. There's no physical injury to this E. Jean Carroll. No trip to a hospital by E. Jean Carroll. No call to the police. Nothing. 
This E. Jean Carroll waited deck. First of all, can I just say, who the fuck calls themselves by their first initial like that? I mean, this isn't Jay Giles. I mean, E. Jean Carroll, E. Jean, E. Jean. Her name is Jean. If you don't want to use the E, whatever it is, Elaine, Elizabeth, Eunice, you're just Jean. E. Jean. You're so precious and so important that you got to have an initial as your first name. That's your first name. If that's your first name, use your first name. This E. Jean Carroll, she waited decades before even coming out in public with this accusation. And she just happened to do it at a time Trump was running for president. Oh, and by the way, this E. Jean Carroll, she's an avowed Trump hater and a crazy leftist. How convenient that that's when she came out with it. And her story also makes no sense, none. She's holding her bag while she's getting raped in four-inch heels, never drops the bag, never screams, no one heard anything, and she invited Trump into the dressing room. Who does that except someone who's expecting sex? Trump would have won the case for certain had he simply said it was a consensual act, but of course, you know, Trump is dumb. And that, you know, that begs the question, how do you lose this case for Trump? Well, again, it's Trump, for starters, and he's so impossibly dumb that he can screw up a sunrise. First, that 2005 video that has come out and has been known as the Access Hollywood tape, it contained this ridiculous statement from him, quote, when you're a star, they, they let you do it. You, they let you grab them by the pussy. You can do anything. Dude, seriously? They, that really, they, they don't. They don't. This is in 1974, and we're backstage at a Led Zeppelin concert. <clears throat> this is, come on, this is 2005. No, you can't do that anymore. People learn. It's a different world now. 2005, man. Come on. Then he misidentified a picture of he was with his wife, Ivana, his then-wife, Ivana. In the picture, Trump and Ivana were with E. Jean Carroll and her then-husband, John Johnson. He was the black newscaster in New York. I used to like him. He said during a deposition that E. Jean Carroll was Marla Maples. Now, that's an astonishing mistake to begin with. How do you mistake E. Jean Carroll for your wife? Come on, man. And he, secondly, he's always told the world that he didn't rape E. Jean Carroll because she's, quote, not my type. Now, yes, she's 79 and she's old now. But back in the 90s, when he allegedly did this rape, she looked good enough, enough like Marla Maples, for Trump to think it was Marla when, in fact, he was looking at E. Jean Carroll. So obviously she was his type back then. These are Trump's own goals. They're his own stupid mistakes. Plus, she had a couple of outcry witnesses. This is really the main thing. An outcry witness is the person who first hears an allegation of rape. doesn't have to be the police. It's usually a, a close, trusted friend. E. Jean Carroll allegedly told two of her close friends as soon as it, it allegedly occurred that she was raped by Trump, and she told them right after. Now, then you'd have to basically be saying that these other women are lying as well, that this didn't happen. But usually, if you're getting raped and you immediately tell somebody, that is indicia of reliability. It's not great evidence, but it's certainly uh, not enough uh, for Trump to lose the case. Now, there were other women that came in that said they were sexually assaulted by Trump a zillion years ago. Naturally, they didn't say anything either, and there was no evidence. So, you know, to me, this could really be a political hit job, and that's the end of it. That's, you know, probably should be an easy win for Trump, or at least, if not a win, a hung jury. Because as I said, I don't think all nine of the jurors are crazed leftists, even if they do live in New York City. Usually, you know, maybe eight out of nine are insane, and maybe one could be relatively normal. 
But what else is happening during the trial, which is, is bad for Trump? The judge is just killing the defense. But we're used to that. Judge Kaplan, he's the judge. He's a really smart federal judge, and he has no patience for lawyers who he believes aren't smart. That's just how he is. I mean, not every one of the judges in that building are smart. And it's a joke. It's become a joke lately because the judges are not, they're getting dumber, respectfully. I had a sentencing a couple of weeks ago with a cooperator, and the judge asked me, it was a, a drug case, and the judge asked me, well, who was worse? The defendant that was already sentenced and received, I don't know, I think it was 48 months, and your client now, and I said, well, judge, it's not even a, a question who was worse, because the other guy was selling fentanyl, and my guy was involved with OxyContin pills. I said, so that alone, one is like the worst drug in the history of man, and the other one was just OxyContin pills. And she said, no, 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 no. The other defendant was only convicted of one count in his plea, and your client was convicted of five. I said, so you're saying that five, because someone was convicted of five counts, that's worse than being convicted of one that makes them worse? And the obvious implication is that when you're cooperating, they make you plead to everything because they want to make you look like you've got like the sword of Damocles over your head if you have to testify. And if you're pleading to a regular plea agreement, they just make you plead to one count. The guidelines are the same. That's the sentencing guidelines in terms of what you're, you know, the advisory guidelines of what you're facing because they, they throw in all the stuff that you're charged with and they figure out the number. So the idea that a federal judge in the Southern District of New York thought that the number of counts of conviction is somehow telling just tells me that this is an idiot. So not all the judges are smart. Uh, judge Kaplan, unfortunately, he's very smart. And He's just mopping the floor with Trump's lawyer. He's interrupting him. He's insulting him in front of the jury, being dismissive, making it clear to the jury that the lawyer didn't understand how to ask a proper question. And this is bad because the jury looks to the judge as like the father, like their father in this case. They look to him for guidance because the judge is the one who tells them what to do and what to think and where to go and when to eat lunch. So they rely on the judge. And if the judge, excuse me, thinks that the lawyer is an idiot, the jury will then think the lawyer is an idiot as well. And then the jury's just not going to listen to this lawyer because they're going to think, well, the judge thinks he's dumb. Why should I listen to him? And I think that the lawyer isn't doing himself, the Trump team isn't doing himself, uh, doing themselves any favors either. They made a motion for a mistrial after the first day, after the first day of crossing E. Jean Carroll. The first day of cross, it didn't go well. And the, they made a mistrial motion. And the basis was that the, the defense didn't like the judge's rulings. Now, the chance, chances of winning that motion is zero, zero. To make it is, frankly, idiotic or just done to impress Trump or done at Trump's behest. Was it done to perhaps convince the judge to back off a bit going forward? Like, look, judge, look at all the unfair things you did to us. We know you're not going to grant this motion, but at least back off a little bit. <laughs> of course not. The judge, Judge Kaplan, responded, denied, didn't even give any reason because that's how little respect he has for the defense. Whatever the reason it was filed, it was dumb. Being a trial lawyer means you get your ass kicked plenty, plenty. And you don't whine about it, okay? You just take it. You don't run to the teacher. You don't run to mommy. You dig your way out of the hole because you're there and you're alone as a defense lawyer. I don't care how many people are on your team. You are there alone. Ultimately, you're the one that stands up in front of the judge and the jury. I had this during Chapo's case again. The first day of the trial during my opening, we ended the day in the middle of it, 
And the judge on his own said that he was going to seek to strike my opening because he claimed I violated one of his orders about discussing a selective prosecution argument. He said I wasn't allowed to. Well, I went right up to the line. The judge thought that perhaps I crossed it. The government didn't even object at that point at the beginning. And that night, he said, I want a memo, I want a response before court tomorrow. So we were up all night, my associate and me, dealing with this. The other lawyers on the team, they were like laughing their asses off because they didn't have to deal with it. This is what you deal with with lawyers. They're jealous, they're angry, they're bitter, and sometimes they don't want to help you, even on your own team. It's sick. And you're going to hear about this with Trump's team as well. They're no different. But again, you're there alone. No one is going to help you when you're on your feet getting whacked around by a judge, but you have to use your wits, your smarts, your tenacity, your charm, and the mere force of your personality to overcome a pain-in-the-ass judge. It happens. Judges rarely rule for the defense lawyer. They're former prosecutors like 95% of the time, and they hate criminals. And that's what they view not only your client, but you as well as. So we have to be way better than the other side, our opponents. When a judge stops your questioning, you need to get that question in somehow, some way. Figure out a way around the judge's ruling. Do not be deterred. Do not just be dumb and move on because the jury sees it. They see a guy who can't figure his way out of a paper bag. I'm not saying this is easy. It's not. I remember during the Gotti trial, one of the prosecutors was constantly objecting to my questions on cross. It was ridiculous. Whenever the judge would sustain, excuse me, would sustain one of the objections, which means that I couldn't ask the question, it happened. I would figure a way around it and ask the same question again right after the objection, just in different words to get it past the judge. And I did it every single time. And then I started looking over at the prosecutor when I re-asked the question to the jury. I mean, I was looking at the jury, then looking at the prosecutor. I wasn't even looking at the witness. And I would re-ask the question in the way that I thought I could get it by. And it was embarrassing to the prosecutor because he'd stand up and object. The objection would be sustained for a minor reason, a ridiculous reason. I would then look at the jury. I would then look back at the prosecutor. And while looking at the prosecutor, I would ask the same question. He would object. The judge would overrule it. And it was embarrassing for the prosecutor. After about 10 times of that, the prosecutor realized what I was doing was making the jury believe that he, the prosecutor, was trying to stop the truth from coming out. And he looked like a clown and ineffective. He stopped doing it. He stopped objecting. Then I could ask any question I wanted because he was afraid that I would be able to get the question through the next time. I started taking some risks and asking questions that I knew were objectionable. He didn't get off his ass after that. People need sometimes to be publicly punished to get them to alter their behavior. You know what also really helps? Knowing the rules of evidence. It amazes me how many lawyers have no idea what they're doing inside a courtroom. And during the Chapo case, and there are many cases I've had with similar stories, the judge did all he could to stop me from scoring any points in front of the jury. He was constantly stopping me. Now, lawyers who are inept usually say when something like this happens to them, well, I was doing really well, so the judge had to stop me. I hear that and I laugh. You know, No, the reason the judge stopped you is because you're dumb. 
But in Chapo, it was clear to me that the judge was terrified. He didn't want me to gain any traction uh, with the jury during a cross and even during the summation. Now, how did I know that he was focused mainly just on me and not because I'm dumb? Because one of the other defense lawyers was just utterly ineffective and incompetent. And this was the lawyer that Chapo tried to fire mid-trial and finally fired him as soon as the trial ended. And the judge hardly ever stopped him. The prosecution never objected to his questions. And I would just sit there laughing to myself. I'm like, boy, what a different cross this is. He can do whatever and say whatever he wants. And I asked one of the prosecutors, why? Why don't you ever object? These questions are ridiculous. And the prosecutor responded, why stop the guy? He sucks. It's helpful for us. But what happened in Chapo to me, I didn't cry and file a motion for a mistrial. I used it against the judge and against the prosecutors. When the prosecutor would get up in her seat to object, she would be like a slow thing happening. I could see it. I could see it like from the side of my eyes, like the side eye. I could see her slowly getting up. I would lock eyes with the jury and start rolling my eyes, letting them know that this was bullshit. I would make sure that I'd ask the same question again. When the judge tried to stop me, I wouldn't just take it. I would come back with the same question, an obviously good question, and get it in, or at least make the judge ridic- look ridiculous for not letting me ask it. I'd come back at him and make him explain in front of the jury why he was stopping me. Many times, because I knew that these were improper, sustained objections. Sometimes he had no answers. One time during the trial, this was ridiculous, actually during the summation, he stops me. I'm on a roll. I mean, this was really the best summation of my life. He stopped me during the summation, calls me up to sidebar to complain about one of my questions, and he's heated. He's heated in the middle, in the middle of the summation. And he says what I did. I'm like, Judge, I didn't say that at all. And I asked the, the court reporter, I said, read it back. The judge was wrong. He misheard it. And I looked at him. I said, now you're stopping me for things that you think that you heard? And he backed off a little bit after that because it was ridiculous and it was unfair. He got exposed. But sometimes you got to defend yourself in there. You can't just take it. Now, here's what the press wrote. The New York Times and some other reporters specifically about the judge trying to stop me during the summation. And look, I want to read this because these are objective people and they didn't even really, they weren't like Chapo fans. They weren't my fans. They were objective. So this isn't just me talking. And this is what one wrote, quote, this was just an, and look, I hate to pat myself on the back. I really don't. I like to pat myself on the back. So enjoy me patting myself on the back. Quote, this was just an astonishing performance by Lickman. He was repeatedly admonished by the judge for crossing the line. Yeah, I was, but it was still an astonishing performance. See, I didn't look like a jackass. Here's another one. Quote, it's a shame that this isn't televised because it's really quite the show. Lickman used to do talk radio and he's channeling that today. He clearly enjoys being the bad boy. Part of the strategy is to provoke the government and make it seem like they want to keep him quiet. Well, yeah, that's exactly what I was trying to do. If they're going to try to stop me, I want the jury to know why. Because I'm being effective and they're scared. And I want the jury to wonder why the government needs to stop me or the judge needs to stop me if the case is so strong against my client. And the government started losing their shit during my summation. And why? I'll tell you why. Here's what a reporter wrote. Quote, I would like to thank Mr. Lickman for a few fun hours of his summation today. The audience was highly entertained, so much so that the judge had to remind those in the audience to quiet their laughter. Yeah, yeah. 
The judge was freaking out because the judge, the jury was laughing, the audience was laughing, and the judge was getting mad. He was getting heated. And here's another comment from the press the day after the summation when they were reading the sidebar. That's the stuff that's not in front of the jury, but you can read it on the transcript the next day. Quote, the sidebar transcript shows just how much Chapo's attorney Lichtman was pushing the envelope yesterday during his closing statement. The prosecutor stated, Mr. Lichtman, I believe, violated the court's order in regard to the selective prosecution argument. The judge responded, I was listening closely. I think he's close, but I think he's on the right side of the law. Look, you want to do this work, you better be prepared to die for it. All right? Maybe it's not for you. Maybe you want to have brunch on Sunday. It's not for you. When I'm on trial, I'm not stopping what I'm doing, no matter if it's the judge or the prosecutor or Jesus Christ coming off the cross to try to stop me. You have someone's life in your hands. You cannot stop. And if you're too dumb or too weak to figure a way around the roadblock in front of you, well, you're in the wrong profession. The world needs ditch diggers, too. Now, the press wrote a few bad articles about Trump's lawyer before the trial started. The worst one, and this was was awful, was that Trump's other lawyers, his other lawyers said that this lawyer, the lead lawyer for the civil case and the criminal case, was an idiot. Now, that's bad. This wasn't just jealous people in the profession. It was people on Trump's own team. That shows how little loyalty they have to Trump. You don't badmouth another lawyer on your team while the trial's going on, for God's sake. Come on. What pissed me off is that all the lawyers calling the guy an idiot did it anonymously. That's what pissed me off. I was actually called for that article. It was a Rolling Stone article, and I refused to badmouth the guy anonymously. I don't like it when other lawyers anonymously rip me, and I wasn't about to do it to someone else. It's hard enough doing this work with the entire world hating the defense lawyer's guts in a high-profile case to have anonymous cowards ripping you in the media. It's pathetic. And oftentimes it's just sour grapes from losers who wish they could have your cases. The one guy that was ripping the Trump lawyer the most, it was just awful. I mean, just these detailed, painfully detailed articles about everything that he was doing wrong. He wrote, I think, at least two of them. He was a lawyer from, I think, New York. So I looked him up. I'd never heard of his name. I looked him up. I never heard of his law firm name. And I see that he was a prosecutor like 100 years ago and he does all these different areas of law, and then at the bottom it said he, you know, handles some criminal matters as well. This is the guy that's ripping, you know, a lawyer on a very high-profile case. It's tough to read something like that because, dude, come on. Who would want to be known as the guy who's – I'm the critic. Who the fuck wants to be a critic? If you have any talent, do it yourself. Do it yourself. Don't talk about what other people can or can't do. If you're so smart, you'd be getting the cases yourself. It takes big balls to do this kind of work. It doesn't take big balls to rip someone, either anonymously or otherwise. The people who do that know exactly what they are and why they're nobodies. So they want to drag everyone else around them down to their level. Jeffrey Lickman for Beyond the Legal Limit. Thanks for listening. You can find me on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, beyondthelegallimit.com. Please write to me. Let me know how I'm doing. See you next week.